Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with David McCraw, the deputy general counsel of the New York Times. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. David is the author of Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, a wonderful book that I, in fact, have read. I've got a few pages left. It's excellent. Don't ruin the ending for me. I won't give it away, Dave. I'm pulling for you. I hope you make it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's in great, I'm in great suspense. The book uh, focuses, at least initially, about the uh, 2016 presidential campaign and some of the interactions that the New York Times had uh, during the campaign. And uh, during the campaign, the New York Times was threatened with a lawsuit by the Trump campaign that resulted in a letter from you that became somewhat famous uh, at the time and provided, I think, a little bit of a springboard for your book. So tell us the story surrounding that famous letter. We had done a story about two women who claimed to have been groped by Donald Trump years earlier. This was in the middle of the controversy over the release of the uh, Inside Hollywood tape. And we really were attempting to advance that story. I read the story in advance, thought that it was solid. I really liked the story because we talked about things that might raise doubts in people's minds. We thought that it was a credible enough story to put it in the paper. but. We, we were open to, with readers about how much time had passed. They never, went to the, they never went to police. They never called anybody's attention to it. And in response to that, the, the campaign issued a letter one night saying that we should retract the story or uh, Donald Trump was going to sue us for a libel. My letter was a response to that. Right. And in your response to the letter, I think you, you famously uh, indicated that the essence uh, of libel is the protection of one's reputation. And then you went on to succinctly state uh, that there was nothing in the article more damaging to Trump's reputation than things in, that Trump has actually said about himself uh, with respect uh, to women. And, and I think that caught some attention. It did catch some attention. It was, and it was interesting to me as a libel lawyer because that was Law 101. It's a very basic principle of libel law that we start with where your reputation is and we look at the, the publication and ask, did it in fact lower the reputation on that particular topic? I, I really felt the end of the letter was what would get attention, and I guess it did as well. Well, at the end of the letter, you said if you didn't agree that uh, the New York Times welcomed the opportunity to have the court set him straight which in, in lawyer language, that is fighting words. <laughs> I, I thought that it was important to establish our results. Look, the, a lot of the letters I get are from people who have what they see as legitimate grief, legitimate beef. They think we got something wrong. They've written to me. They deserve to have an open dialogue with me. Let's get to the bottom of this. I think others are really done for public posturing. And so when it's somebody like Donald Trump, when it's somebody like Harvey Weinstein, when it's somebody like the National Football League, they are making a public statement. We feel we need to respond publicly. Now, was this the first time the New York Times had a, a complaint from Trump about uh, your coverage of him, even prior to the time that he was running for president? As you, as you know from the book, Dave, I spent a lot of time dealing with Citizen Trump's complaint about stories, most of which dealt with how much he was worth. 
And there is an extended chapter on the back and forth over that particular topic. So known quantity had gone down this road before with Trump's lawyers, not always the same lawyers, but, and I think that's part of what I wanted people to understand in the book is that this is, uh, this is a book about how law happens on the ground, how the First Amendment shields, how the First Amendment empowers reporters. I wanted people to see firsthand how that works. And, and the Trump story is a really good example of that because you see the interaction of reporters and lawyers and our attempt to defend our journalism. Right. And of course, as you know, if they're in any sort of defamation or libel case, truth is a absolute defense. And if you have the truth on your side, then you're really safe. That's right. And I think one of the things that, that I hope people get out of the book is that we work really hard to get it right. Do we always get it right? No. There are times we're going to make mistakes. That's how it goes. We try to correct those. We tr try to be open in that process. But at the end of the day, I hope people come away from this saying, the business of journalism is hard. It's worth doing. It's important for America. And, you know, the New York Times may not be perfect. It's, it's an art, not a science, how journalism gets done. But there is a sincere effort to get to the bottom of the truth. Right. And to state facts and sometimes facts can be hard to to find out. And uh, certainly the New York Times does a better job in trying to find the facts than perhaps some of our political leaders do. And it, it, the book is called Truth in Our Times. That was a title my publisher suggested. And it's a good title. Thank you. People, it's a good people, title, people but like, like so typical of the New York Times. You've got a good title, <laughs> Truth in Our Times. And then you go on and on. Inside the fight for press freedom and the agent, I like fell asleep in the in well, the subtitle. There's a reason for that. We want to see how good podcasters are at hitting the inflections. <laughs> you really got to be good to hit it. Okay. But it's really about the pursuit of truth. And that would have been an unwieldy title. It isn't really like turn to this book for the truth. It's this is how truth happens. This is the, the exploration. That's what we should all be about is, is trying to find out, not reaching some absolute truth, but the process of doing that. Right. And since the election, uh, President Trump has attempted to delegitimize the press, not just the New York Times, but New York Times is usually amongst the, his favorites, um, calling, you know, New York Times reporting false reporting. Uh, because he doesn't like it, uh, refers to the media as the enemy of the people. Uh, what, if any, impact has this had on how the New York Times conducts its reporting and its business? I think that it's empowered people to recommit themselves to making sure they've done everything possible to get it right. This is an environment where you're going to get called out if you make even the most innocent of mistakes, I actually think that's a healthy process. I think it's healthy to have that kind of feedback. And what I'm trying to encourage readers, people on the street to do is to um, ask hard questions, not simply accept labels like fake news. If there's something you don't like in a story, let's focus on that. Let's figure out what what, what is wrong and, and talk about it. There was a, a woman who wrote to me this morning saying that uh, – how do you respond after the Mueller report? And I said, here's how I respond after the Mueller report. Tell me what we got wrong and let's talk about it. She started sending me articles. I started sending her articles. She didn't convince me. I didn't convince her. But that's the process. That's actually right. exactly how it should work. Let's get beyond the labels. Let's talk about the facts. Right. And, you know, in talking about the Mueller report, 
All the New York Times did was report on the facts as they knew them. Uh, they didn't make any conclusions about the Mueller uh, report and right. what it might be. Right. And and you asked the question about the impact. And, and one of the most disturbing polls I saw last year said that 26% of the people who responded thought that the president should be allowed to close down a news organization for misbehaving. That's Only concerning. if they get to pick one. <laughs> that is really right. concerning. I'd like that too. Yeah, yeah that's really concerning. <laughs> uh, and it, it really raises question in my mind about whether the, the vision the founding fathers had is has been lost. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And I tried to write the book not as a book for lawyers, but as a book for people in all walks of life who just care about where the country's going. Right. And and I think you have. I mean, there's a lot of little uh, anecdotes that you put in there that are very interesting that I think anybody can relate to because they're current events. We can all get our hands around them. We all remember what happened. One thing, uh, one event that was fairly significant that you talk about in the book is when President Trump uh, accused the New York Times of treason for publishing an anonymous op-ed uh, that was titled, I am part of the resistance within the Trump administration. Do you remember that little incident? I do. And I did write about that in the book because I, I thought it, it, it exposed something that, that people needed to understand. And that is that when there is a call for a leak investigation, which the president called for in this particular case, even though it wasn't a leak, trying to want right. to find out who wrote that, that it's usually about suppressing an opinion or silencing as opposed to actually protecting national security. And Anonymous really got at that because here was somebody inside the government writing in the first person, talking about his concerns about where government was going. We published that. The, the story I tell, as you'll recall, is that, that the editor came to me and had his work papers from that and he, they were in an envelope, and he said, would, would you like to look at these? Would you like to know who Anonymous is? That was a really unfair question because he knew the answer that I really, really wanted to know. Who didn't want to know, right? But as a lawyer, I, I prefer not to know unless it's absolutely necessary. So he sealed the envelope in front of me. It killed me. He handed me the envelope, and I, I, I put it away. So remind me again, who was Anonymous? The, I wish I knew the answer to that. Right, Usually I, when somebody suggested, I, I just agree I'll with tell you that. what. Blink twice if it was Mike Pence. Oh, I, 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 my eyes are fluttering. Nobody can see that. You know, Mike Pence is one of the most interesting characters because when the when Congress was looking at passing a federal shield law, right, to protect anonymous sources, who is the leader of that? Mike Pence. Mike Pence, Congressman Mike Pence, really believed in that. He'd been a broadcaster in Indiana. He was in favor of it. He was our go-to guy. He's not in the House, literally and figuratively. Now, uh, even though there were uh, a lot of claims now about uh, the press and the media being the enemy of the people uh, and these claims against uh, the New York Times regarding their reporting, it, doesn't there seem to be kind of a symbiotic relationship between the press and the media and Donald Trump? I mean, he needs the media and... The media, whether they're on the right or the left, seems to need him. That's a really interesting relationship. And it was it was interesting to me that the last time our reporters were there, and they, they were there with our publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, that he talked about the New York Times as my newspaper. And I think that's how he as a New Yorker feels about it. Uh, he cares about what we have to say. Um, and 
if, if you're saying have we benefited in terms of circulation, subscriptions as a result of the Trump administration, the numbers tell the story. There certainly has been a Trump bump. People have turned to the New York Times. So you're not failing. We're not failing. We're not <laughs> failing. <laughs> now, a lot of local newspapers are failing and they, they need our help, but uh, the Times isn't one of them. Right. No, they're not. In fact, the New York Times is, is doing better than ever, both uh, in print and, and online, since Donald Trump uh, became president. Probably not better than ever, but, but doing well All and right. surviving and, and making money. Now, um, there was a post-election analysis by Harvard School of Public Policy, and they had the campaign managers from all the Republican candidates, including the 15 that lost. All of them were together in a room. And all they did was discuss how impossible it was for their candidates to get into the news cycle. Nobody cared about any policies. Nobody cared about how much money they raised. All they cared about was Trump's statement. And they, in fact, they said the only time they would get into the news cycle would be if they said something about Trump and then it would be reported. When we have that kind of news reporting on presidential campaigns, how can we really get to the the, the meat and the policy issues that uh, we need to be talking about. It goes back to something a, a magazine editor once said to me that if you go out and ask the readers, what, what do you want in the magazine? They'll say, oh, do a story wither NATO, okay? And we'll do wither <laughs> NATO and nobody will read it, okay? Right. Now, if we do a Jennifer Lawrence story, everybody's going to read it. You, you, to some extent, the, the, the audience isn't really being honest with itself. That stuff is out there in a variety of places, more so than ever with the internet. If you want to find where the candidates stand on issues, you can find that. Now, people complained to me over the course of the, of the election, that uh, of the campaign, that, oh, how, how come the New York Times and everybody gave so much attention to Trump? I looked, he was standing in the middle of the stage in Iowa. <laughs> Were we just supposed to ignore him and talk right. about Ted Cruz? Uh, so sometimes it's reality that, that, that people are really complaining about. Now, obviously, the attacks that uh, we've heard have uh, taken a toll because there are people that uh, are triggered by some of these continued mentions. And you write uh, in your book that much of your work involves security for employees. You're not always making these, you know, fine legal decisions, but you're trying to protect your employees and your reporters here and around the world. T tell us a little bit about the work that you do in that regard, because it seems to be a significant part of your job. As, 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 I, as I lay out in the book, I stumbled into this area. Uh, one of our reporters was kidnapped in Afghanistan in 2008, David wrote, and I suddenly found myself pushed to the front of our response team. I had no experience in that. I, I learned a whole lot. David escaped uh, after seven months. We then had another reporter kidnapped, and as I tell in the, in, in the book, that became my role again to, to lead the response. What's different now is the, the level of domestic security issues that we have. Uh, I talk in the book about having a whole file cabinet of threats, some of which are funny, some of which are deadly serious, that people feel that they can send in. Uh, and we see this online, people being trolled, their addresses being put online, their children's schools being put online. It's really unbecoming. You're talking about employees, reporters, about reporters, yeah, Times, reporters, yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it, it's it's really disheartening. And I don't blame any person for that, other than the people, who, other than the person who sends it. 
But it's clear that that in the current age, people sitting at home, in front of their computer, late at night, their fourth beer, they feel they have impunity and they can send it in. I've had people threaten us and forget that they have their address at the bottom. Right. Well, you know, people people are angry because we've got issues in this country. I mean, we the reason that Donald Trump is president is because we people are angry um, and doesn't seem like in the last two and a half years that those issues have really been addressed. Uh, we've focused for the last two years on all these uh, salacious kind of scandalous type things. Uh, you've indicated in your book that for the most part, you know, people give lawyers a bad name. Like if you talk to your lawyer, you're not going to get out of bed in the morning, but you stand behind your reporters and the reporting and you say it's very rare that you'd stop uh, an article from going forward on legal grounds. Um, is there an example of a of a of a article or a, a story that you, you you put the skids on because you felt legally it shouldn't go forward? There's only one article in my entire career I ever remember saying we shouldn't run this and having to convince editors to do, and I was wrong. Okay. <laughs> I was probably right at the time. It was at the Daily News. And that would have been in 2001, 2002. And somebody wanted to do a story about how Roger Clement's behavior showed he was on steroids. And I thought that we really weren't in a position to play doctor, <laughs> to, to analyze what was going on. Now, in retrospect, hmm. uh, we were probably right before our time. But it, 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 that's not – but at the times, my role is not to say no. My role is to advise. It's a classic role of, of, of the lawyer. And – the whole opening chapters of the book deal with publishing of Trump's tax return when we received the, the three pages in the mail anonymously. And it was very important for, to me to communicate that we're allowed to do that under the First Amendment and the public should be happy about that. <laughs> and people should understand the First Amendment protects that. Um, it, was, it came as a shock to find that right after we published that, the Washington Post ran an article that said we were in legal trouble for publishing it. it. Really was one of those things that prompts me to write the book because if we're not telling, we're not getting through to the people in our own profession about the First Amendment, how can we hope the public to understand it as well? Right, and you're talking about the time when uh, you anonymously received some of uh, Trump's old tax returns and, and actually uh, published them because they were not obtained through any uh, improper we didn't We didn't do anything illegal to get them, and we did a tremendous job. David Barstow, Sue Craig, Russ Buechner, and others did a tremendous job of taking those and figuring out that they were authentic and figuring out what they mean. But as I say in the book – we published the story and the next day I'm at Yankee Stadium and Sue Craig calls and says, the Washington Post says we're in legal trouble. You told us we weren't. <laughs> so I then found myself in the unpleasant, unpleasant position of having to read the Washington Post during a Yankee game, something I try not <laughs> to do ever. So let me ask you a, uh, a hypothetical question. Let's say there's a special counsel on something and they issue a report and appropriately give it to the attorney general. Uh, as they're required to do. And the attorney general doesn't release the report and just gives a one-page summary that may or may not include everything that's important um, and says, I'm not going to release the, the full report. Then uh, a couple of days later, reporter for the New York Times gets an anonymous brown envelope that contains the entirety of the special counsel's 
report. The reporter checks with their source at the attorney general's office and they say, yeah, this is the report, but please don't publish it. What do you do? I think you're supposed to say I don't answer hypotheticals, but I'm going to answer that yes, one. It's just, it's <laughs> right. just, just hypothetical. It right? <laughs> Look, if, if it's newsworthy and we've obtained it, we're interested in publishing it and the law protects us in doing so. I, I can't imagine someone not going with that story. You talk a, a little bit in your book about the issue of whether there's a uh, any bias by reporters, whether in the New York Times or elsewhere, whether there's a liberal media bias, um, if uh, it, whether it's the New York Times or MSNBC or anywhere else. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on reporters and whether they, there's a, a political bias there. I would not call it a political bias. What I talk about is that people get into journalism because they want to affect change. They don't get into journalism because they want to write stories that make sure that the powerful are more powerful, the richer, richer. They are interested in stories that address social injustice, that are helping the little guy and all that. And so to the extent that's a bias, that that's a, a look at what kind of stories get done, yeah, that's, that, that is that is a, a tendency. But when it comes to actually writing the stories, it's not that different from being a lawyer. When I was an associate at a law firm, I had a hideous client, a really unpleasant client. We took on pro bono. He was charged with arranging a murder. He was a pain. He was just an awful person to deal with. I felt I had to put that aside. <laughs> when I went to court, he was my client. It's not different for reporters. Do they have feelings? Do they have things that they think about in, in, in their private life? Sure. But they need to put those aside to tell the story straight. Do they always get there? They're like lawyers, not always. But if they're professional, they're working at it every day to try to get there. I, I tell the story at the, at the beginning of that chapter about Stanley Dearman, who was the um, editor of a small paper in Mississippi, and he refused to stop talking about why no one had been charged with murder for the death of the three civil rights workers back in the 1960s. The people in his community were sick of hearing it, and he stood up to them. That to me is really courage. And, and as I say in the, the book, standing up to government's important. Standing up to your readers is sometimes as important. You also mention in the book, and this is, I think, purely anecdotal uh, based upon your observations, but that your feeling was that at least prior to this uh, election, the reporters didn't have any particular dislike of Trump. He was an uh, animated type person, would, always, would answer reporters' questions, uh, sometimes say something funny. So there wasn't any particular animus, certainly before his presidency, towards him. And in fact, you, you say in the book that he might be liked, he might have been liked more than some other politicians that are very popular. I think that's right. It, it, it doesn't break left or right. I think that a lot of reporters um, have their their difficulties with Bill de Blasio. I think a lot of reporters have had their difficulties with, with Andrew Cuomo, both of whom are progressive Democrats. Um, but in, in just in terms of, of likability, whenever Trump has come to the building and met with reporters, people have come away charmed. He is a likable fellow from everything I know. I've never met the man. Um, and so the idea that somehow 
this has to deal with personality is not really, I think, uh, accurate. So in your book, you don't mention uh, what I think is an obvious bias. I, I haven't heard it really discussed. But can you comment on the obvious bias in the sports section that's in favor of the Yankees and against the Mets? See, I'm a Yankee fan, so I don't see, see it. I, well, I, it seems it seems so completely. It all seems great to you, right? <laughs> it seems right. Uh, it, there, there's there's no if, if the Mets won, you would see that 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 shift. But um, you know, they 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 just have to start winning more. So, you know, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because you people come and look at the facts uh, and say, well, that's biased because I don't like it. Um, but, you know, could you say, you know, the Mets, the headline could be Mets tried really hard. Could it be that <laughs> instead of they lose another one? You know, Dave, I was afraid you were going to come at it from from the hockey standpoint because those people have a beef. You don't cover hockey. Well, yeah, we, we really don't cover hockey. The I way was going to complain yeah, yeah, that yeah, it was yeah, a little yeah, too yeah. much hockey, but yeah, okay. uh, All right. honestly. So uh, New York Times found itself in something of a difficult situation when it reported on allegations against uh, Harvey Weinstein. And it turned out that Weinstein's outside counsel was the same lawyer that represented the New York Times on occasions, uh, David yes. Boyce. Um, tell us a little bit about that situation and some of the, some of the, the legal issues that you had to deal with. Yeah. Uh, David himself hadn't represented us, but uh, his firm had. We had had a 20-year relationship where from time to time they'd represented us in business matters. And as it turned out, um, we had hired a, a lawyer at his firm to take on a very difficult libel case that we had. And that lawyer, Pete Skinner, did an incredible job defending us. Um, it was always a little uncomfortable because the the, the boys' firm – had from time to time threatened to bring suits or written on behalf of uh, their clients to us and to others. Um, but we had always kind of managed it. Uh, it had been one of those things where I actually felt it opened up a line of communication. Where we ran into a problem is that uh, after the Weinstein story broke, New Yorker did a, a very, very fine story, which pointed out that Harvey Weinstein had hired Black Cube, an investigative firm, to look into our reporters who were doing the Weinstein story. The signature on the contract with Black Cube was David Boyce, who was representing Harvey Weinstein. I thought that crossed the line. And and in, so in this situation, the, the pushback was that they had hired private investigators to investigate your reporters and to find out what? Well, about it, that. Be, beyond that, they had a kill fee provision in the in, in the contract that if if the investigators were able to stop the story, they were then entitled to three hundred thousand dollars on top of the the payment they were already receiving. I, I just felt to have a law firm that was representing us, that was being paid by us, to go after a core mission was wrong. Was it a legal conflict? No, it wasn't. We clearly had signed a waiver. David and his firm were, were free to represent others. But it, it did seem to me that that just in, in some very basic right and wrong, it's one thing to go after the truth and try to get the facts out. It's another thing to follow reporters, have them uh, contacted by people who have fake identities to try to get them to say things that may in fact um, uh, undermine or be used against them. And were there uh, any overt efforts to get the New York Times to stop the story or pull the story? 
through the investigators, I know of at least one incident where somebody portraying uh, herself as a member of an advocacy group tried to make contact with our reporters. It, it didn't actually work out that way um, in the end. Obviously, there were legal threats. We were receiving letters on the run-up to the story, and that is par for the course. People do that. It happens every day. So to that extent, was it over? Yeah. Was it outside the norms? No. But the investigation, the secret investigation run through the uh, boys' firm seemed to cross the line for me. You talk a lot in the book about um, the use of leaks and all the legalities that are involved in leaks. Now, so just because something is leaked doesn't mean it's necessarily illegal, right? Um, uh, and you discuss this kind of uh, awkward legal position where you're you're advocating for a, what you call a, a modicum of lawfulness when it comes to leaks. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, as lawyers, we're 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 rule followers. And leaks by the yes, very. Yes, we are. It makes things <laughs> difficult. It's right, hard to. Right. We do, bend the rules. It's hard we, to do we, business when you're right, following the rules. Right, right, right. We, we we bend the rules. We sometimes turn a blind eye to interpretations we don't like of the rules. But in the end, we we agree in the rule of law. It, leaks occur in 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 a shadow land where inevitably someone who's leaking a document or talking is violating an obligation to an employer or in some cases, leaking classified information that's supposed to be kept secret. And obviously, the government has some secrets it, it needs to keep and should keep. Most of the times, though, the leak investigations are not really about national security. They're about silencing reporting or voices that the government would prefer not to hear. And so I find myself in the position of standing up for our right to publish those things. Now, the way the law works, as I sketch out in the book, the, the legal liability really lies with the leaker and not with us. But that in itself is uncomfortable because we depend on them. And one of the, one of the major episodes in the book deals with General Cartwright, who right. is pursued in a leak investigation. This was, be, this was pursued under the Obama administration, which you point out during the Obama administration. They were very tough on Very leaders, aggressive, right? yeah. And, yeah. and uh, New York Times had a relationship with this General Cartwright. And, right. Uh, he was charged and you he, – He ultimately pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. And his lawyers came to me and said, will you help us out? And normally – we try to keep a distance from sources. The public expects us to be honest brokers, not agents, not partners with our with our sources. So it becomes an agonizing decision. Here's a guy who we think really wasn't a leaker in any conventional sense of the word. He actually was trying to help our reporter understand where the sensitivities were on this particular story. The story dealt with the cyber attacks. And this is a, this is a situation where the government actually re referred the reporter to. Right, the white, the white. Right. It wasn't the, like right. you uh, deep throat. You're meeting in a parking garage. This was part of the above board uh, exchange of information that happens regularly with uh, government officials. Right. The white, the White House told our reporter David Sanger, "Should talk to General Cartwright. He knows a lot about cyber warfare. He can help you understand where the sensitivities are." And the the chapter in the book 
addresses the agonizing decision of can we help this guy? Does that violate something journalistically? We ultimately decide to write a letter of sentencing, which we understand helped him. But it was also a classic case, as, as, as you know from the book, where the lawyer writes the very routine 10 sentence letter, sends it to the reporter, and it comes back as three pages. <laughs> it was actually better. Right. Well, and it had uh, the desired effect, right? That's right. Um, That's right. You talk, uh, ultimately, General Cartwright, um, even though he did plead guilty, uh, there was later a pardon, right, by yeah. President yep, Obama. The, 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 and suppose, according to the book, at least, uh, the, the, the letter that was written may have been persuasive. That's what we were told um, through our reporters at the White House. The, I was very gratified the other day. I was in Washington talking to a, a, a veteran reporter who, who talked about that chapter and said, that was such an important chapter because I learned something about how that reporting is done inside national security, and it's important for, for readers to understand it as well. But most of it's really driven by David's rewrite of my letter because it, it gets into this idea that this is not somebody meeting in a park and in, in the shadows of, of the evening. This is – piecing together little bits of information to come up with a whole. And so much national security reporting really works like that. If the public comes away understanding that, as opposed to this idea of some treacherous late night meeting, that would be a great thing. Now, obviously the common thread in your life, your professional life, and in this book is uh, the First Amendment. And there was recently a U.S. Supreme Court case where uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in a concurrence that it was time maybe to reassess uh, the First Amendment decision regarding uh, New York Times versus Sullivan uh, that requires a public figure to satisfy the actual malice standard in a libel suit. What do you, what do you think of this whole issue? Do you think there's any uh, merit to it? Do you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up again? I don't think a lot of people are sitting around looking out across America and saying, you know, the one thing we really need is more libel suits by rich guys and rich guys winning those libel suits. I mean, all the problems, I, I don't know why. might be good for lawyers. It may be good for lawyers, and there's some rich guys who probably really like the idea. Um, I, I'm not particularly concerned about that. Uh, Clarence Thomas wrote that concurrence. Nobody joined him. The glass is one-ninth full. I'm going to wait for a while before I get concerned about it. I that means you're an optimist, right? When <laughs> the whole book is a testament to unfounded optimism over <laughs> and over again. I believe things are going to be all right. They're not all right, okay? Um, but Times for Sullivan works. You know, the, 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 the thing I love about the decision is Justice Brennan, all nine justices of the Supreme Court said, look, these libel suits are being brought in the South. They're not about people's reputation. They're about silencing the Northern press. They do not want the Northern press to keep coming down here. It's 1960, 1964. Do not want the Northern press coming down here and talking about what's going on with segregation. Don't want talking about what's going on about uh, civil rights protests. And the court got that and said, we're going to erect a wall legally. And they did. And it's worked. I think, in fact, it probably works better now because if you don't like what's in the New York Times, you as a citizen and you especially as a person of power have so many channels on the internet to get your message out. I'm told that uh, a really great newspaper will make you angry sometimes. So by that standard, I'm going to say the New York Times is a really great 
newspaper. Okay. <laughs> I don't I am, know where this is going. I am a print subscriber. I am a print subscriber. Um, you know, but uh, the whole Mets thing we'll, we'll put aside. <laughs> what future do you see for not just for the New York Times, but for print newspapers? I love getting you know, the just the print paper that you can flip through. And I think when you when you look at a newspaper, you read things that you might not otherwise read. If you were searching on a on the internet for something, you might get exactly what you need, but you don't get the other stuff. You don't get the interesting obituary about somebody that you never heard of. Um, so what what future do you see for for print newspapers? The surprising thing is that the print newspaper continues to be a major revenue driver for us. The advertisers still believe in it. Subscribers are willing to pay a lot of money to have it. Um, is it sustainable? I think that's going to turn on advertising and on those subscribers, how much they're willing to pay. Uh, I agree with you that it's a little bit like being an undergraduate at a college. You're forced to take a lot of stuff that you wouldn't otherwise take. You're forced to see that. That's really positive. And I think you're right that that the internet tends to be like graduate school. You focus on one thing, and if you all you want to know about is the Mets, you can spend all day learning about the Mets. Right. And uh, that would be a, uh, a sad existence. <laughs> I, I'm I'm afraid to say. And but the others, on the other hand, you know, you've got uh, you know cable news that is is really uh, going towards someone's predisposition so if you have a predisposition for something you can watch uh, you know one network uh, versus another network but the problem with tv news is that if there's a story you're not interested in you've got to sit through there till they get to the next right. one that you might be interested right. in at times you can flip the page if you don't want to read that the new york times is two page uh centerfold of all of trump's insulting tweets right which right. you did uh, you can move on to the next right. uh, to the next article. Right. Uh, Great thing about a newspaper. So, where do you see the New York Times being in in let's say ten years? I mean, you look at where you've come over the past ten years. Um, where do you see it going in the next ten years? Ten years. We, we would hope we would hope that the numbers would continue to rise. We have very aggressive goals for how many readers we hope to have. Um, I think that we will continue to be as a practicality uh, digital first. Uh, there was a time when I came to the to Times in 2002, the key moment in the day for a lawyer was, began about five o'clock at night, ran till about eight o'clock because that's when stories were crashing to go into the next morning's print edition. Now it's all day. <laughs> you know, I, I, at five o'clock in the morning, I'm reading stories and I'll be reading stories nine, 10 o'clock at night uh, in, in advance of publication. I think it's inevitable that, that we continue to grow on the internet. I think you're going to see much more visual journalism. I think you're going to see much more audio journalism. At the end of the day, the publishers who survive are those who are going to provide the information in the manner in which readers, viewers, and listeners want it. And we're not in a position to say, oh, this would really be a better print story if somebody wants to listen to it. Right. Well, David McCraw, thank you very much for being here on Miranda Warnings. Uh, David McCraw's book is Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts. Thank you, David. We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. 
where our special guests can talk about any type of artistic performance, and certainly your book would fall within that category. <laughs> but if you have another one, uh, if you have another one, uh, please share it with us. I'm going to admit, Dave, that this morning I listened to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young first okay. thing in the morning. Okay, and I'm going to admit that that wasn't the only morning I've done that. Uh, so uh, if, if you want to reach me, that's that that's still my vintage of music and it still moves me. Excellent. Thank you very much, David McCraw, Truth in Our Times, Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times. Thanks so much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.